A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon in today for Julia Chatterley. And just ahead on the program, miraculous rescues amid the unspeakable pain. We will take you live to southern Turkey, where search efforts are ongoing after last week's devastating earthquake. More than 36,000 people now confirmed dead, with Turkish authorities arresting dozens of property developers accused of negligence. Plus, mystery in the skies. U.S. fighter jets shooting down three unidentified objects and North American airspace in just three days. The latest incident happening Sunday over northern Michigan. Officials being pressured to reveal more. We are live in Washington with the latest. And NATO Secretary General warning that Russia's long-feared military escalation in Ukraine has already begun. With Ukrainian leaders warning of massive Russian attacks ahead. Moscow claiming frontline gains as well. All that and much more. But first, hope amid the rubble in southern Turkey. Rescue efforts are intensifying one week after that devastating earthquake that has now claimed the lives of over 36,000 people. And the 178th hour of the rescue, a 25-year-old woman is recovered alive. That's what we're looking at here. It's one of the latest in a, just a series of incredible stories of survival. Also, a baby rescued after 108 hours. This baby here, officials say he's resting and he appears to be in good health, at least based on that smile on his face. And these stories of hope come as anger grows over the government and President Erdogan's handling of the crisis. Turkish authorities have ordered the arrest of a number of property developers accused of negligence. That's after tens of thousands of buildings collapsed. Turkish police also dealing with online threats in the wake of the tragedy. They have arrested 14 people accused of posting fake information aimed at spreading panic. Police have also shut down sites demanding money from citizens or posing as charities. Jamana Kareche joins me now from Turkey. Jamana, of course, you have been on the front lines there since the very beginning. What's the latest there? Well, Rahel, we just got back from Syria. We got a first-hand look at the impact of the earthquake on northwestern Syria, that last rebel stronghold where you have more than four million people who have already been living through humanitarian crisis after humanitarian crisis in real dire conditions. And now on top of that, you have the earthquake. And I can tell you, we visited a number of uh, cities in uh, Idlib uh, province. And what we saw there is people digging through the rubble with their bare hands using anything they could find um, to try and uh, get through the, the piles of rubble to try and find their loved ones. They're not looking for any survivors anymore. They've given up. Right now, they're trying uh, to locate their loved ones to give them a proper burial. It was a real heartbreaking scene, just seeing young people, old people, all just digging with their hands, trying to find them. One man we spoke to, Rahel, had lost 21 members of his family, including children. And he said that to us completely, no expressions on his face, completely numb. And it really shows you how people in that part of Syria feel right now. Every single person we spoke to says they feel that they are yet again being abandoned and have been abandoned by the international community, left to deal with this crisis on their own. I mean, the Syrian people for years, you know, I've covered this conflict for more than 12 years, and the Syrian people very much a long time ago in these rebel-held areas gave up on the international community coming to the rescue and helping them. They did appeal for help, cried for help throughout that conflict when they were being bombed, when chemical weapons were being used, and they say nothing 
the international community did nothing. But they thought this would be different, that this is a natural disaster. So in the early hours after the earthquake, you had doctors, rescue workers from the white helmets, the civil defense there, all urging the international community to provide them with the support they need to deal with the aftermath of the earthquake. And help didn't arrive, Rahel. And we saw the um, the impact that has had. We visited a hospital uh, in Idlib province. Doctors there told us that they could have saved many more lives if they had the medical supplies they needed, if they had the equipment they needed. And these are doctors who have seen all kinds of injuries and cases of trauma that have come through their doors over the years uh, of this war. But they say this was different. You had a large number of people coming in at once, something they've never dealt with. And these are hospitals that are on the verge of collapse, the whole health infrastructure in the country after years of bombardment uh, by the Russians and the Syrian regime has really left them ill-equipped to deal with something like this. And in addition to that, you've had aid that has been slow to come in. And then you've had the complexities of aid coming through the Turkish border after the uh, airstrikes. So you had hospitals and then you had the white helmets. Those are, you know, the teams that are known for their heroic rescues during the uh, Syrian war. They would dig people out of the rubble uh, of bombed buildings. But when it came to this, they urged the world to send them the equipment they needed to try and search for survivors, to try and get people out. They needed machinery. They needed just about everything that we see for example, here in Turkey, that is being used to try and get survivors out. And they didn't get that. Um, mm. And and this is, again, saying that they feel completely abandoned, completely uh, left alone and forgotten. And now aid is starting to get into Syria over the past few days. You had U.N. Uh, aid convoys going in. But people there would tell you this is too little, too late. And... You know, we've we've heard from the um, a senior UN official who was at the border with that convoy uh, went across saying that it is understandable. And they agree that the Syrian people feel like they had been uh, abandoned, that the international community has so far failed Syrians. And now is the time to act to try and fix this and try and get them the aid they need. But people there told us that it's too late. They have lost the people they could have saved if that aid had come earlier, Rahel. Mm, Jamana, you just, you know, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was thinking it is understandable that people there would be wondering. And, you know, you, we heard these comments over the weekend from people in Syria saying, why is no one coming to help us? And so that frustration and that feeling just of, of true disappointment and devastation is certainly understandable. Uh, Jomana Koreche, thank you. And the next hour on Connect the World, we'll also see your special report on how people are coping in Syria. So for all of our viewers around the world, be sure to tune into that in the next hour. And as you have heard, the long-running civil war has been complicating relief efforts in Syria. The World Health Organization is currently waiting for final approval to send aid deliveries into northwest Syria. Top WHO officials are in Aleppo with humanitarian aid, but they're unable to bring that aid to rebel-held areas, at least not yet. The U.N. has been able to get trucks full of supplies into northwest Syria. However, they are asking for more border crossings to be opened so that more aid can be sent to the rebel-held areas faster. Nada Bashir joins me now. So Nada, uh, as Jomana pointed out very well there, it is a very complex series of issues for Syria. Walk me through the relief efforts uh, in Syria as far as you know. 
Well, look, Rahul, we are standing in a huge distribution centre, an aid distribution centre here in Istanbul, and the vast majority of that aid is heading to southeast Turkey. And the aid response, the humanitarian response here in Turkey, has been far more robust than the aid that we've seen going in uh, to northwest Syria. And of course, we saw those logistical challenges in the first few days in the aftermath of the earthquake. That one single crossing, the Berbelhawa border crossing used by the United Nations, uh, many aid trucks unable to get there simply because the roads uh, leading up to that crossing were too damaged after the earthquake. But now, of course, there's a real focus on that cross-line aid, not the cross-border aid, getting that humanitarian assistance from Damascus, which is in the government-controlled territory, up north into that rebel-held territory. And we have seen over the last week uh, aid being distributed to Damascus and flights uh, to straight to the capital there. There have been commitments, pledges from President Bashar al-Assad's government, they've said that they will allow that aid to pass through. But the message that we're hearing from the aid groups is that this simply hasn't translated to aid getting through in practical terms. They haven't been given a timeline. They haven't been given specific routes. We are simply not seeing that aid reaching the people most in need in those rebel-held territories. And of course, as you heard there in Jamana's reporting, this is a population that was already hugely dependent on humanitarian assistance, a region completely decimated by years of war at the hands of President Bashar al-Assad. These are people truly, deeply in need of that assistance. And of course, there has been a huge international response. We've seen aid being flown in from across the globe, but the vast majority has been sent quick enough. We have seen those international rescue teams, of course, coming in to provide support. But there has been some criticism of the Turkish government. The government itself, uh, in response, says it is carrying out an investigation into negligence within the construction industry. More than 100 people already identified, according to the Justice Ministry, as potential suspects, and a number of people already arrested, some even arrested overseas, or even one man arrested at Istanbul International Airport while attempting to flee uh, overseas. So there has been a real crackdown uh, by the government. Whether this is going to be seen as enough uh, by the Turkish population remains to be seen. Rahel? Nada Bashir, thank you. Back here in the U.S., the U.S. military shooting down another high-altitude object. An F-16 fighter jet took down an unidentified flying object over Michigan's Lake Huron on Sunday. It is the fourth object shut down in North America, starting with a suspected Chinese spy balloon on February 4th. Natasha Bertrand is live in Washington with the latest. Natasha, yet another one of these objects. What is the U.S. military saying? I mean, what's the response here? Yeah, Rahel, so what we have learned is that the reason why, or at least a large reason why, so many of these objects have been detected in U.S. airspace over the last several days is because NORAD, which is the entity responsible for overseeing American airspace, has essentially broadened its filters out and uh, broadened that aperture of objects that it can see through its radar. And that's because there was a political uproar in the last week over that Chinese spy balloon that transited the U.S. And so NORAD essentially said, we need to figure out way to uh, spot these things uh, sooner. So what they've done is they have uh, changed those filters to make it easier to spot objects traveling at a certain speed, at a certain altitude, uh, slower moving objects, for example. And now they're picking up all of these objects in U.S. airspace. But the question is, what are these objects and why is the U.S. military feeling as though it is necessary to shoot every one of them down. And that is the uh, question that was posed uh, last night to the Pentagon by a number of reporters saying, is this the new normal? Every time we see one of these unidentified objects in U.S. airspace, 
are we going to be shooting a missile at it and bringing it down? Now, the Pentagon says that it was necessary to take these down, even though they are unidentified and it is unclear whether they even had any kind of real surveillance capabilities because they were traveling at an altitude that is essentially a threat or could pose a threat to civilian aircraft. And so they felt it was necessary to bring them down for that reason. But ultimately, you know, the administration is going to face a lot of questions here about what is actually known about the origin of these objects, what they are capable of and whether it is uh, reasonable and appropriate to expect that every one of these objects that we see are going to be shot down uh, as they come into contact, of course, with the Defense Department's radar. And then questions, uh, I suppose, about how often are we, the public, going to know what exactly that is, what exactly the object is as pressure grows for Biden to respond to these. Natasha Bertrand, thank you. Meanwhile, Beijing strongly criticizing Washington, claiming that the U.S. illegally flew high-altitude balloons into its airspace. It is also common for U.S. balloons to illegally enter the airspace of other countries. Since last year alone, U.S. high-altitude balloons have illegally flown over China's airspace more than 10 times without any approval from relevant Chinese authorities. The first thing for the U.S. to do is to introspect itself and change its course instead of slandering and inciting confrontation. Ivan Watson is live in Hong Kong with more. So, Ivan, China fighting back with strong accusations of itself, saying not only has the U.S. done this itself, but it's done it 10 times. Yeah, I mean, the the accusations between Beijing and Washington over alleged uh, spy balloon programs are flying faster than the balloons themselves right now. Uh, You just heard from the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson uh, claiming that uh, U.S. balloons, spy balloons, have been flying in Chinese airspace. Well, the National Security uh, Council spokeswoman uh, in Washington uh, has gone on Twitter and already denied that, accusing instead China of running a high-altitude surveillance balloon program that she accuses China of using to violate U.S. airspace, as well as the airspace of at least 40 other countries across five continents. Uh, Beijing has also pointed out that the U.S. flies reconnaissance planes and sends warships uh, near uh, Chinese uh, sovereign territory uh, in the South China Sea alone, saying that there uh, were at least 64 of these kind of uh, operations in January alone. Uh, All of this kind of underscores the fact that uh, the tensions are mounting between these two capitals. You've just heard about three unidentified objects being shot down by U.S. jets over North America Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of last weekend. Well, on Sunday, the Chinese, uh, a Chinese state news outlet said that there was an unidentified object flying in the air off the coast of Shandong province and uh, quoted Chinese officials saying they were preparing to shoot it down and urging the public to take pictures of the debris, collect the debris as possible evidence. That has set the Chinese uh, internet, which is highly censored, on fire with lots of speculation uh, as of Monday today. We haven't gotten any updates from Chinese officials about what they suspect this object to be, where they think it's from, and at what altitude it is operating. So we're going to keep watching that. A lot of questions. And it certainly felt like at a time when many hoped that there would be a thawing of relations between the two nations, that this could potentially be a reset. Uh, Ivan, before I let you go, the Philippines also entering the mix now, saying that uh, the Coast Guard, a Chinese ship rather, aimed a laser at one of its vessels, a a military-grade laser. What more do we know about this? 
Right. This isn't new. The, the Chinese uh, and Philippines Coast Guards have been jockeying in contested waters of the South China Sea uh, for years. Uh, what the Philippines Coast Guards are, uh, is saying is that on February 6th, it had a resupply ship going to some Marines that are stationed on a contested reef in the Spratly Islands uh, to resupply them and that their crew, some of it was temporarily blinded by what they described as a military grade laser from a Chinese Coast Guard vessel, uh, and that that ship also came dangerously close to the Philippines Coast Guard vessel. Uh, In response, uh, the Chinese foreign ministry has accused the Philippines Coast Guard of uh, trespassing into the waters without permission of China. Of course, China claims virtually all of the South China Sea for itself, despite the fact that the Philippines, Brunei, Malaysia, Taiwan, uh, they all have their own contested claims for parts of this this territory. And and this just gets back to a, a, a bigger problem or a bigger challenge is that smaller countries in the region, they feel and they uh, fear that China is encroaching on their own areas, their own uh, maritime areas. This is not new. It's not going away. Rahel? Seems that way. Ivan Watson, thank you. And to Ukraine now, where at least four civilians have been killed in the attacks on the region of Kherson. It comes as China's top diplomat is set to visit Russia ahead of the one-year anniversary of the war. David McKenzie is in the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv. You know, David, there's been so much attention on this expected spring offensive. And new comments say from the NATO secretary general saying it appears that it may have already started. What more can you tell us about fighting along the eastern front, these eastern front lines? Well, Rahel, you can't set your clock to these kind of things, and it has become a bit of an academic exercise. But what is hugely important is the fact that the Russian military, uh, their units there in the Far East, uh, particularly around or the Eastern uh, Front, have been throwing a lot at the Ukrainians. And at this point, at least in one zone around Volodar, they have been pushing them back. And the Russians, according to those uh, sympathetic to the Russians, uh, according to UK defense intelligence and to the Ukrainians, Uh, they are taking heavy losses there. The NATO Secretary General was asked the question whether this offensive had begun. Here's his answer. We have seen the start already because we've seen what what, what Russia does now, President Putin do now, is to send in thousands and thousands of more troops um, accepting a very high rate of casualty Um, taking uh, big losses, uh, but putting pressure on the Ukrainians. If you look at this video that we have obtained, you see the heavy losses in real time happening to Russian forces, pushing through the heavily defended zones of Vladar and getting uh, obliterated, frankly, uh, by uh, uh, indirect fire from artillery, uh, by drones, also going through, it appears, uh, heavily mined areas that the Ukrainians have placed there. And it seems like Putin and his uh, generals are just uh, willing to throw Russian soldiers at these defenses, and they haven't, in at least that region, made much ground at all, despite those heavy losses. To the north of that zone in Bakhmut and the villages around that uh, heavily contested area, 
area. The Russians do appear to be uh, having more success through their uh, conventional forces and private military contractors, according to them. Uh, the big question now, other than whether Ukraine can withstand these assaults in the east, Rahel, is whether they can actually get what they need. You've had Ukrainian uh, commanders telling us that they are at times running short of artillery shells. In particular, the NATO Secretary General dealt with that specific issue, saying that there is a long lag time between making those requests and actually producing new artillery uh, for the Ukrainians. And that will be, I think, a very important part of the discussions uh, between defense ministers of NATO region uh, uh, over the next day or two uh, to try and figure out how to maintain the support for Ukraine. There's been a lot of talk about sophisticated weapon systems like tanks and like fighter jets, but they need the basic artillery, particularly those old Soviet era artillery shells to continue their fight. Rahel? It's mm, a good point. David McKenzie, live for us there in Kiev. Thank you. We'll have more first move after the break. Welcome back to First Move, a baby bump reveal for Rihanna. At the Super Bowl halftime show on Sunday, Wall Street Bulls hoping for a bit of a stock market bump today as well. At least right now, all the futures are up. U.S. stocks currently on track for a mostly higher open. That's after the first down week for the S&P 500 this year. Lots of concern that stocks rose too far too fast in January, especially with those ongoing uncertainties over borrowing costs. Fed officials now warning that interest rates may have to head higher than expected if inflation doesn't cool fast enough. Tuesday's read on U.S. consumer prices will be a critical data point for the Fed, especially after revised numbers out late Friday. They show inflation coming in a bit hotter than expected the past few months. Joining me now, Mohamed Alarian. He is an advisor at Allianz Gramercy and the president of Queens College at Cambridge University. Sir, good to have you on the program today. Thanks for having me. I want to start with these new recession projections. Eurozone saying that the Eurozone and EU should narrowly avoid a recession this year. The IMF saying today that the U.S. should avoid a recession as well. Where do you stand on this in terms of 2023? Because at least from my perspective, Team Soft Landing seems to be growing. So Team Soft Landing certainly had a good few months. Um, I've never thought a recession in the U.S. was inevitable. The, the big news is the recession in Europe may be avoided. And that is because Europe has dealt much better with the gas supply issue and has had a bit of good luck on weather. Yeah, that has been good. In terms of the U.S., when we hear about a recession, it seems to be followed by two words, short and shallow. Do you buy that? I know you don't believe that a recession is inevitable, but if in fact we do, do you believe the short and shallow argument? No, I think the short and shallow is the same trap as transitory inflation was, that we hear something uncomfortable and then we try to reframe it into something comfortable. So when we heard in 2021 that we were having high inflation, the Fed came out and said, don't worry, it is transitory, meaning it's short lived. It will be reversed. We're hearing the same thing about recession. If we fall into a recession, I want to stress it's a capital I and a capital F. If we fall into recession, it may not be short and shallow. So we have to be very open-minded and not repeat the mistake of transitory inflation. The path of inflation, what does it look like to you, Mohammed? Because last week when we heard from Chair Powell, he said that 2023, if I remember correctly, will be the year of significant declines in, in inflation, but it won't be until 2024 that we get back to their target of 2%. What does the path ahead look like to you? So Chair Powell basically used the word disinflation 11 times. 
And this inflation is this notion that the rate of increase of prices not only comes down, but certain prices actually fall, which is what's happening. So that is the scenario for the Fed, that we're going to have a very orderly reduction in inflation. I suspect we're more likely to see sticky inflation at about 4%. I must also add that there are certain people who think we see a U-shaped inflation, that inflation gets on a higher trajectory towards the end of the year. But I think the most likely outcome, in my opinion, is sticky inflation around 4%. And, and what's driving that sticky inflation? Is it the services inflation and the really strong labor market? Is it shelter inflation? What do you say being the biggest contributors to that? So right now we have service inflation high and goods inflation coming down. There's a limit to how far down goods inflation can go. So we, we are likely to see goods inflation stabilize, but because, as you mentioned, of the hot labor market, we're not likely to see service inflation coming down significantly. So if you like, we lose the breaks of goods inflation and we continue with the accelerator of services inflation. And that's why certain people, including myself, worry about this notion of sticky inflation. Mm. Mohammed, you know, you sort of rose to worldwide prominence, I think. Those of us in the economy and the financial news, we all knew your name, but sort of uh, after this last year, everyone knows your name because of your transitory call uh, or your, your call that it wouldn't be transitory. What's the hardest part moving forward of making sense of this economy? It is, like Larry Summers said, a very difficult economy to read. So the hardest part, believe it or not, is cognitive, is the ability to keep your mindset open and look at multiple scenarios um, because that's what we're facing. This is a very, very uncertain, not just uncertain, but unusually uncertain because we also have longer term issues. We have the energy transition. We have geopolitics. We have the rewiring of supply chains and we have the functioning of the labor market. So, so many moving pieces that the most challenging thing for economists and for policymakers is to keep your mind wide open and look at multiple scenarios. And that's not easy. No, it is not. Mohamed Alarian, thanks for being on the program today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. And just into first move, one week after that devastating earthquake hit Turkey and Syria, I want to show you these pictures. This is a 13-year-old boy. His name is Khan, as I understand it. He has been rescued alive. This is happening in the region of Hatay. This happened just moments ago. Our team here at CNN was able to turn this video around for you for you to see. But rescue workers there, you can see him on a stretcher and getting him into an ambulance. If you can hear that, that's people cheering in the background. More than 36,000 people have died in the quake. But this young man, a 13-year-old boy named Khan, has incredibly and miraculously been rescued alive. Sarah Seidner joins me now. Sarah, incredibly, eight days into this, we are still hearing those stories, but they are unfortunately few and far between. Tell me a bit about where you are and what you're seeing. Rahel, I'm in Andiaman. This was uh, an area that aid was very slow to get to. It is here now. Uh, and there are people from all over the world, everyone from China to Americans to Italians uh, to the Czech Republic. But they're dealing with a hellscape, to be honest. It is building after building after building. Some of them that are still standing are damaged beyond repair. And a lot of them are crushed like pancakes. 
on top of each other. And what we've been watching today uh, are dogs coming over, which indicates that they either think that there are bodies inside or that there are signs of life. They've been pulling out all sorts of things, really the stuff of life. They've been pulling out clothes, they've been pulling up books, uh, they've been pulling up different things, pots and pans, and you can sort of see them strewn about. But what is most difficult to see is yes, this destruction, but more so the families that are sitting all around the perimeter uh, where they can to watch this happen because their loved ones are inside and they are hoping beyond hope, firstly, that they are potentially alive after these eight days or that they finally get some closure and see the body of their loved one so that they can bury their loved one properly. We have been watching that in city after city after city Pretty much the moment that we landed, we were approached by a woman who was telling us her story of, of grief that her husband has still not been found. Thirty-eight-year-old Kudret Kuchibelar desperately pleads with volunteer rescuers to search for her husband Badir. He's buried, she says, in their corner apartment, which is somewhere under this rubble. They try to console her, but this mother of twins wants action, not words. There is nobody out there. It's been six days. I'm waiting here with my twins standing in the cold. She says she's been asking anyone who will listen to dig her husband out, but for six days, she says officials kept telling her they needed permission from the government to start on her building. I want my husband back, even if he's not alive. She may have accepted his death, but can't go on without seeing her husband's body removed from this hellscape. My life, my blood, my everything, my best friend in life. He left me with my twins here alone. While she waits for the realities of her husband's death, here in this area where you see enormous piles of rubble, these are different buildings, but you can't really distinguish them because there's just so much destruction. There have been signs of life. A child was found here alive after a week in the rubble. <laughs> Nurses comfort the girl, who they think is three or four years old. She's dehydrated and in shock, but alive. <laughs> this is the moment she was rescued. Her exhausted little body pulled from under the seemingly endless mountains of rubble in Hatay. Mashallah, mashallah, sana. She was rushed to the makeshift hospital set up in the parking lot of the actual hospital that was evacuated after the earthquake. When she first arrived, as a mother, I felt that she was like my own daughter, this nurse says. She's cracking up the staff. She's talking. When we walked in, the toddler had managed to make the nurses laugh, relieved she could talk a bit. What is it that she said that made you all laugh? She made all the nurses laugh. Anne. The word that made all the nurses laugh was mama, and I'm hungry, I want to eat something. What did that do to your heart when she said mama? I felt a great pulse in my heart, she says. No one knew her name, and when they asked, she said dada. It turns out 
This toddler does not speak Turkish. She speaks Arabic. Rescuers later tell us she's Syrian. And she has been taken to a hospital. We understand she is doing okay. We are now watching in another city, not in Hatay where she is, but in Andiaman. We are watching someone go into a small pocket that is clearly cleared of rubble. It is not smashed to the ground. You see the gentleman there in the blue uh, jacket. He's been trying to dig in there to see if there is anyone that may have survived in that pocket there that has not been completely smashed. But if you follow me, and Byron is taking the pictures here, Rahel, if you follow me, out and and see the scene here these were two buildings and i know they're indistinguishable at this point because they have literally been pulverized from the weight uh, of their collapse but if you look to the right just to the right of me you will see people across the street those are families waiting for their loved ones in this bitter cold hoping to find any sign of life or even at this point of potential death so that they can bury their loved ones for help. Clinging to hope and clinging to closure. Sarah Seidner, thank you for being there and thank you for your reporting. That's Sarah Seidner. And joining me now is Jose Andres, James Beard award-winning chef and founder of World Central Kitchen. His team is on the ground right now in Turkey. Jose, I know your team mobilizes very quickly when these natural disasters happen. Help me understand what you're seeing and what your team is experiencing there on the ground. Well, let me tell you, we landed here uh, 12 hours after the earthquake, and I was in 2010 in Port-au-Prince in Haiti, and I arrived there only a few weeks later. Uh, that was the beginning of, of World Central Kitchen, and especially in earthquakes. What I saw in Port-au-Prince was destruction, it was thousands and thousands of people dead, many, many buildings destroyed. But this is like 20 Port-au-Prince, this is like 20 earthquakes. This is the magnitude of what the Turkish people are going through. This is like 400, 450 kilometers long earthquake. Mm. And they didn't only had one, they had two. And many of the buildings that collapsed also, they didn't collapse on the two earthquakes, but they collapsed on the aftershocks. So what we are seeing is obviously one of the biggest events we had in the last century. And overall, with all this destruction, all this death, I want to really say that the Turkish government, with the different emergency uh, organizations they have, and all the help that has come from around the world, they are doing actually the best they can to cover the suffering of mm. everybody without homes or people with homes. But that right now, it's easy to understand why they are way afraid to go into a building, even into areas that they've not been so affected by the earthquake. Absolutely, because we've talked to people who say that their home is still standing, but there are cracks in the wall, and so they're afraid to go back in because it hasn't been deemed safe. Uh, Jose, help me understand, for the folks that you are serving, how many of these people have actually lost their homes versus people who just have no home to go back to or are afraid to go into their homes, rather? Well, uh, it's all of the above. I've been always, uh, already able to go in the last days very much all around the different areas hit by uh, the, um, the earthquake. And everything used the story repeats town after town after town. Obviously, uh, they are trying to do as many. I'm here next to one of these 
camps where people are staying. They are building them as quick as they can, but we need to understand that these tens of uh, thousands and thousands of families that they're going to have to be moving uh, into those tents. And then it's everything. Not too far away, a USBC uh, hospital that came from the Spanish government, the IFID, that in these events, they always go to help with. And the hospital this morning, as soon as they opened, they had 300 people, and this without anybody knowing that the hospital was already uh, open. So from the healthcare issues, from food, from blankets, uh, I've been in the mountains at night. The temperature, for everybody to understand, is been under 10, under 20 Celsius degrees. This is why right now everybody doing food, especially at night. You try to make sure that you don't only do food to, to cover those needs, but that the food is hot, like soups. And where people with that soup, they don't only fill up their needs, their physical needs, but it's a moment that their, their, their hands can be warming up in these very cold nights of northern part Turkey. And Jose, I mean, we saw some shots there. And as you just mentioned, soup, help us explain a bit more for our viewers all that you are offering to these people in addition to the soup. Um, we saw some of the pictures there look like rice. What else are you offering? Well, uh, here is a lot of people in the early days, in the early hours, I would say, at night, in front of every building, especially the buildings destroyed, you will see a big fire. And around that big fire will be the families. The families waiting, hopefully, for finding their loved ones alive. And then you will see in the early hours of these response, people, normal people, restaurants or hotels, that they will come up sometimes so as far away as Istanbul, uh, use in their, their car with a big pot of soup, chorba, as they call it here, uh, different soups like trahana soup, the, the soup of beans, the fasolius, uh, and, and soup is been what is being winning this cold day. So at World Central Kitchen, we are only one of the many other people and organizations doing the best we can to cover those food needs. So we are serving things that are local. Why? Because when we arrive, we identify the restaurants that were open, that they were safe, that they could cook, and what things we began serving in the early days. Kebabs. I mean, we landed in Natana. It's almost the capital of kebab. Kebabs is some of the items we began serving. When in emergencies you show up, some of the best response always happens not only with local people and local restaurants and local chefs, but happens with local food. This is very much the types of food we've been trying to do here in Turkey. You know, Jose, we spoke to an aid worker last week who said that he had previously been the person giving out meals. And he said for the first time in his life, he was the recipient of warm meals. And so I thank you for what you're doing there. And I thank you for being on the program today. Thank you for having me. That's Chef Jose Andres. Welcome back to First Move. The curtain going up on a key week for Wall Street. U.S. stocks coming off their worst week since mid-December, although you can see stocks are up right now. One reason, though, for last week's performance was lackluster profits. Some two-thirds of S&P 500 firms have reported earnings so far this profit season. Credit Suisse says that we are on track for the first drop in overall earnings in two years. We'll get important results this week from consumer brands like Coca-Cola, Airbnb, Shopify, and Kraft Heinz. The U.S. is also out with its latest look at retail sales on Wednesday as well. And, of course, tomorrow, as we spoke about earlier with Mohamed Alarian, we'll get the all-important U.S. CPI report.
Welcome back to First Move. Some of the world's luxury brands have come under fire for not being transparent enough about their supply chains. Two young Canadian entrepreneurs have set out to change that with a solar-powered watch. And today's Global Connections, Solios, on a mission to make watches with the lowest possible carbon footprint. It took these two entrepreneurs a trip around the world to make a product that would not only help transform the market back home in Canada, but in the watchmaking industry itself. It makes more sense to move towards more durable practices and durable consumption habits. Nearly a decade ago, as university students in Montreal, Samuel LaRue and Alexandra DeZebra noticed that many brands weren't transparent about where they were sourcing their material and how their items were being made. That's when they knew they wanted to build something different. The main issue that we saw with the watch industry was that it was very static. So there was not a lot of things happening. On the other side, we knew that the fashion industry is a very polluting one. According to a 2020 Human Rights Watch report, several well-known jewelry and watch brands have raised alarm for not being transparent with consumers about their supply chains. And with this in mind, Samuel and Alexander knew they had to take a different approach. When we were working at our old job, we, we told our boss, like, oh, we're taking some vacations, but we were just going at all the watch fair everywhere in the world. After visiting multiple cities across Europe and Asia, Samuel and Alexander finally discovered all the material they needed to create the first Solios solar-powered watch. We managed to find the solar technology in Japan, and then we traveled to China and Hong Kong to find some pieces like the crystal and the hands and the dial. And then we moved to France where we bought the letter, then we worked with a company from Switzerland to assemble the strap. While they weren't the only solar-powered watches on the market, Samuel and Alexander say it's the raw materials that make their watches different. Usually these brands, they had more bulky design or the dial itself was not something very minimal and very elegant. Compared to them, we're trying to use new material that are free of any petrochemicals. The first Solio's watch launched in 2019. Since then, interest in their brand has spread out to more than 40 countries since a majority of their customers buy the watches online. The percentage of sales online is almost 100% for now. If we're talking about our top five markets, Canada first, United States second, the UK third, Australia fourth, and France is number five. But now Samuel and Alexander are hoping to achieve something even bigger. They're working on transforming Solius into a brand that emits the lowest carbon footprint throughout all of its operations. We do need to do our homework to make sure that even though we have different suppliers around the world, our emissions are at the lowest level possible. We're going to evaluate moving one piece, a production of one piece locally, but using a different technique that might be more emitting. And as they head back to the drawing board, Samuel and Alexander are still optimistic about achieving their ultimate goal. And finally, singer Rihanna had fans saying, please don't stop the music with her stunning Super Bowl halftime show. The high-flying performance was the biggest set for the singer in years since stepping back to focus a bit more on family, acting in her hugely popular cosmetics line. Fans commented on what they thought to be a baby bump, and the Hollywood Reporter says she is indeed pregnant for the second time. Congratulations to the icon. She was working, and that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Connect the world. Coming up next. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. 
Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.